So Money Episode 71, David Patra. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Whether you're on your commute to work, coming home from work, at the pool, at the park, thank you for joining me. This has been a tremendous ride since January. We have surpassed over 150,000 downloads, all thanks to you and your support. And today's guest is quite the mogul. We've got someone today who is a great reminder that no matter how painful a life blow or a career setback is, you can still recover and not just survive, but flourish and lead a richer, happier life. Today's guest is David Patruck. He was let go as the CEO of a major financial services company, Charles Schwab, after having invested in it his whole life. In his own words, I was embarrassed, I was humiliated, and I was devastated. But as they say, when one door shuts, another door opens. And as a result of simply having more time on his hands to think and reflect and contribute, he got to experience something he fell in love with, something so refreshing and captivating that he now says he would have loved to do it much earlier in life. David is the author of the new bestseller, Stacking the Deck, How to Lead Breakthrough Change Against Any Odds. And we're going to talk about that book. Now, almost a decade later since being let go at Charles Schwab, David is now the chairman of Hightower Advisors. That is a $25 billion wealth management firm that he helped launch in 2008. He also serves on the board of directors of Intel and a number of startups and teaches at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Three takeaways from our interview with David. One, why it's so hard to lead breakthrough change in corporate America. How and why David's financial philosophy changed over the years and his practical financial habits, all which he's kept to this day, even though he doesn't really have to. Here is David Potrack. Dave Potrack, so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to So Money. Thanks, Farnoosh. I'm really happy to be here. Congratulations on your new book, Stacking the Deck, How to Lead Breakthrough Change Against Any Odds. And I look forward to going down memory lane with you, Dave, shortly and talking about some of the changes you've experienced in your career. And I'm sure you know which ones I'm going to be asking you about. Uh, But in the meantime, share a little bit more about the title. The title kind of uh, resonates with me and I want our listeners to really kind of know where you were coming from when you titled the book, Stacking the Deck. What does that really mean? Well, you know, it's interesting. I never planned on having that title. And I was talking about this subject with a friend of mine. And I was talking about the fact uh, of what I've been teaching. I've been teaching this course in the Wharton uh, MBA program for almost a decade. And I was explaining to him that the deck is stacked against you when you want to lead breakthrough change. It's so hard. Companies are built for reliability, consistency, predictability, control, and risk minimization. And breakthrough changes are the opposite of that. And so none of the systems, none of the performance appraisal, planning, budgeting, bonus, they don't work very well for breakthrough change. 
And so it's really hard and the deck is stacked against you. And he said, well, why don't you name your book Stacking the Deck and explain to everybody how to restack the deck in their favor. And so that's how the title was born. It was not my idea. It was the idea of one of my colleagues. And you don't have to be a CEO to to create breakthrough change. Uh, This book is really meant for really any employee at any level, right? Well, the course I teach um, uh, at the Wharton School, my students are typically about 35 years old. They're executive MBAs. I teach in the exec ed program also at Wharton, uh, where my students are typically uh, division leaders, division managers. They're usually about 45 years old. And so most of my teaching, which is really where my book came from, is for people who are not CEOs. They're, they're leaders of, of business units, leaders of, of, of a business or of, or of a unit, a department. And uh, the idea of leading breakthrough change is really something for any executive to, who wants to, to get off the momentum plan and do something bold and, um, and innovative. This idea of change, sometimes it's not in our control, not breakthrough change. You're talking about something different there, but this kind of this broader concept of change, change, uh, you know, sometimes we feel like we don't have any control over that. And I think what maybe is inspiring from your perspective is to say, you can get on top of that. You can, you can control the change. You can own the change as opposed to the other way around. Well, the reality is that we don't make a a choice about whether we're going to be part of change in our lives. The world is changing so fast. We all know this. I won't go on and on about this because we all see how the pace of change, technology, globalization, regulatory changes, all these things that are, uh, that are creating an enormous amount of change. Companies that had been part of our lives, there was a Tower Records down the street from where I live. It was there for 50 years. It's gone in the blink of an eye. Um, so change is not a choice. We don't, we don't have that choice. So the only choice we, ha- we do have is are we going to get in front of the change or be swept along by it? And uh, it's my belief that we want to lead the change rather than be swept along, which also, by the way, means that part of that change has to be how we change ourselves Mm. as part of that process. I'd love to get a little bit more personal now and and talk more about your experiences with change. And as you said, sometimes in case, well, actually in all cases, change is not something that we can control or choose sometimes. You were the CEO of Charles Schwab. And in 2005, you uh, were let go very publicly. And that departure is something that you have talked about openly with the press. And I'd love to have you share with us that moment in your life. I mean, there's obviously been, it's been years since that, since that experience you've gone on and have hit major successes. But I think for our listeners, we would love to hear about kind of what was going on in your head at that moment, not so much the next day or or three weeks later or a year later, but that day, take us there. How, uh, how did it all come apart? Well, um, I guess the, uh, the fact of the matter is that um, Schwab deciding to terminate me 
um, was mostly a surprise. And I say mostly a surprise in the sense that I had no idea that the board was considering this, but I certainly knew that the company's performance uh, during the dot-com downturn from 2000 to 2004, the company's performance was nothing to be proud of. We were struggling. And what we were struggling with was downsizing the company. And I was downsizing the company. I hated every minute of it. I wasn't very good at it. I failed to bring in outside advisors to help me. And I didn't really know what I was doing to downsize. That was not my skill set. I was a grower. I was pretty good at growing the company and not very good at reducing, shrinking the company. And that's what that... That first part of the OO decade needed our company to be um, downsized. That was, that was the mission of leadership, was to not look for a silver bullet, but to accept the notion that we needed to downsize the company, and that's what we needed to do. And I struggled with that. So when Chuck informed me that the board had, had lost its confidence in me, and that they were going to need to make a change, um, I was um, I was devastated. Um, I was embarrassed. I was humiliated, and I was devastated. And it was a extremely difficult moment. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. So uh, it took some time for me to um, regain my footing. And one of the uh, fortunate things that happened was uh, at the time I was on the board of Intel and I actually hadn't been on the board for that long. I had been on the board about, uh, I I guess about five or six years. So I guess it was longer than I I thought. So I'd been on the board for a while and I had gotten to know Andy Grove, who was the chairman, who was a legendary CEO and leader in Silicon Valley. And I was at a board meeting uh, a few weeks later. He came up to me and said, Dave, uh, you you seem, uh, obviously I could see that you're rather um, quiet in this meeting and you're still adjusting to the change. I just want you to know that you're the same guy that was here a month ago at our last board meeting. And we are immensely uh, delighted and proud to have you as a member of our board. You're that same great guy that's been a part of this company for six years. And um, we are we are proud to have you as a board member and we are confident in your contributions going forward. So, you know, suck it up and get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, Andy, did, I haven't said that exactly right because Andy was not one to mince words. And um, he he kind of gave it to me between the eyes. Come on, get sucked it up. Let's go. Let's go, man. Get back out there. Yeah. Would you say, would you go so far to say that you're happy it happened? No, I would not say I'm happy it happened. I would say that I made the best of it mm-hmm. and it opened up, it opened up new opportunities for me. What, what I'm, I, I am happy that I left Schwab. I actually wanted to leave Schwab in 2000 and Chuck talked me out of it and convinced me to stay. I had another conversation with him in 2002. I was sort of anxious to go do something else. Um, and so in the sense of 
it, 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 it unleashed me to move on. And that I am happy. I just wish it had happened differently. I wish the board had perhaps come in and talked to me about a more orderly transition, something that allowed me to preserve my dignity a little more in that moment. But, you know, things happen. And um, I learned a lot from the experience. And I've tried to share that learning with others who go through similar things. It happens. Lots of CEOs get fired. It, the average tenure, what I read the other day, the average tenure is three or four years. So uh, it's a it's a high risk position, and it, and things happen. High risk, high reward, and flat, fast forward now ten years. You have a book. You're still on the board of Intel, correct? I am. And 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 also you are the chairman of High Tower Advisors, which uh, for folks on the podcast who aren't familiar, it's a uh, multi billion dollar wealth management firm. You launched. Uh, you helped to launch in two thousand eight. I went on the website earlier this week and. I like the 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 positioning. It's removing the walls from Wall Street. Do you think that the public is just completely um, distrusting of of Wall Street these days? I think people distrust the Wall Street institutions, but they do trust their financial advisor or stockbroker or whatever you want to call the person who works with you on your individual account. So I think the big firms have. Um, have had their reputations tarnished to a large extent. But um, I think people really like the person they're working with and they trust that person. That's, that's an immensely important thing. They just don't like the firms they work for. Right. So, and so we, we started Hightower in 2007. We started Hightower from a piece of paper. And today, well, this year we'll probably... Um, uh, do about $170 million of revenue and, and we're very profitable and uh, um, we're in 20 states now and the company is growing. Um, it's, it's actually growing as fast or faster than Schwab did in its early days. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, big, it's a big opportunity and we're excited about it. I don't know what the future holds, but we're pretty, pretty excited about what we're building. Congratulations. Well, let's transition now, Dave, to my so money questions, uh, beginning with your financial philosophy. I'm curious to know what is uh, a money mantra that you uphold that has helped carry your financial strategy and financial decision making throughout all these years. And I'm actually curious to know, has it changed given uh, all of your experiences? But what would you say currently is a financial philosophy that helps to keep your money where it needs to be? Well, Farnoosh, I think when I was younger, I was um, more of a risk taker. And I think that you have more time to live through downturns when you're younger. You, you, have, you have 30 years, 40 years of, of saving and investing in front of you. So my early strategy was to be much more concentrated. And the truth of the matter is, when I was younger, my 100% of my financial future was tied up in one stock, and that stock was named Charles Schwab. So um, uh, I was a very, very in a very, very concentrated position. Uh, as I got older, uh, I started to diversify my holdings because my goal was more about um, risk minimization and holding on to what I had made 
Uh, I made a fair amount of money. And so I didn't need to um, shoot uh, for the stars. I needed to protect the downside as well as go after the upside. So my philosophy today is patience and it's diversification. And, and diversification will have years. It will have many years where you're, you'd be much better off not diversified. You'd be much better off with 100% of your money in the, uh, in the S&P 500 and an ETF or an index fund. But that's going to give you a more volatile up and down ride. And you've got the risk of one investment that um, uh, could, um, could, could suffer I- extraordinary losses. So I'm, I'm much more in the patience, in the diversification, in trying to um, uh, continue to grow without having as much volatility. I'm, I think when you get older, you, you, you want a little less volatility in your investments. Right. I was talking to my financial advisor the other day, and I, I said to her, you know, I really would like to see where we can uh, swap in some more index funds, ETFs for, for funds that are above or have a higher than average, perhaps management fee. And her advice was, I totally understand. We're going to do that. Let's do that. But she said, you know, for some of these funds that are like, say, an emerging market fund where there is going to be a lot of volatility, you might want a fund that's a little bit more uh, managed just for, like you said, that, to manage the downside. Um, and uh, in, some, in some cases, there aren't a lot of options when it comes to index funds for categories like, like an emerging market or something a little more nuanced. Would you agree with that? I, I agree that wholeheartedly, Furnish. I think that um, the, the, um, the large U.S. companies – uh, is such an efficient market. There's so much information. There's so much liquidity. There's so much trading that it's very, very hard to outperform in investing in in uh, large U.S. companies. So an index fund makes a lot of sense as a cornerstone of your of your large U.S. investing um, uh, position. But if you're investing in and emerging markets is a perfect example. The markets are less liquid. The markets have less information. Mm-hmm. Uh, you often do want a, um, an, an, a manager who is looking at those markets and who's paying attention to um, individual investment opportunities and, and looking at the, um, the mix of where your money is going. Uh, do you want to be in the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China? Do you want to, so emerging markets includes those big economies, or do you want to be in the smaller economies um, of the, um, uh, the, the, the frontier markets, as they're sometimes called, where today there seems to be a greater opportunity? The, the frontier markets are accelerating their economic growth, and the BRICS are actually decreasing their economic growth. So you really have a tale of two different markets within what is commonly thought of as emerging markets. You spoke a little bit about your experience at, at Schwab and, and, and the departure. I'm curious to know now, what is a financial failure that you personally experienced that uh, while it was devastating or it was impactful, it did ultimately lead a path to, towards more success? Well, so when I left Schwab, I started investing in startup companies. 
And um, I, I really hadn't done that before. I had put all my time and energy in Schwab. And so I started investing in um, various ideas that people brought to me that I liked. And here's what I learned. I learned that a good idea does not necessarily create a good business. And a good business does not necessarily translate into a good investment. So you have to look at something in terms of its idea value, its value as a business, and then its value as an investment. All of those are different. And, um, and so I didn't know that and I had to learn that. Then I learned number two, um, that when you're investing in startups, your first check is just your first check. There will almost always be follow-on investments and, and, and the size of your follow-on investments are often determined by your first investment. If you invest and you uh, put a million dollars into a company and that gives you 5% of the company and then they want to raise a new round uh, and, you, and you don't want to participate, well then, A, you're going to get crushed by the way the preferences work. And number two, it just looks bad. It looks like you're not being supportive. So when you go in, you have to expect there's going to be follow-on investments and you have to be prepared. So go in small mm -hmm. and be prepared to build your position over time. Can you speak specifically to this? I know that when you left Schwab, you invested in uh, a number of startups. Uh, what was one in particular that exemplifies this lesson? Oh, a, a wonderful example. How would you like to own a startup airline? Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, so uh, some very smart guys came to me uh, asking me to invest in a startup airline. And I thought, oh, God, that sounds so much fun. Airlines travel around the world. This company was, was doing an all first class airline. They called it business class, but believe me, it was first class, 48 seats on the plane, New York to London every day. And I thought, man, that, that's got to be a home run. That's a great idea. People would love being on a plane with 35 or 40 people, no crowds at immigration, no crowds at baggage claim, uh, limousine taking you right downtown, all lay flat seats. I mean, it was a very, very cool idea. And so I, and they asked me to join the board and put an investment in. So I, I actually wrote a seven figure check and I put them, I put my money in and I joined the board and I was on this, uh, this airline. And of course the airline got started. Our CEO was a very smart strategic guy, knew virtually nothing about marketing and sales and the airline launched and the planes were beautiful, but had no, no passengers, no passengers. And so, um, after six weeks of that, the, the CEO was demoted. Uh, we had to look for an interim CEO. I got tapped for that job. It was supposed to be something I was going to do for two or three months while we found somebody. But who the heck would want to go to work for a failing airline? So we had to turn the airline around before we could find someone willing to take the job. And that took 14 months. And, um, and, so, and then we had to raise more money because we burned through all of our money. Ultimately... Um, when, uh, when, when oil suddenly shot up from a hundred dollars a barrel to $150 a barrel, we were almost instantly out of business because that was such a devastating price change to our company. So there was a good idea 
that turned into a mediocre business and a horrible investment. Hmm. I think I remember interviewing the founders. I was a reporter at New York One. Was it called EOS? Yep, it was called EOS. Yes. Was, and everyone who flew it, by the way, loved it. And so what so do you think was the... It was the, a great product. Yeah. It was a great product. And so that's my point, that great products don't necessarily translate into a great business. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it was pretty compelling. I have to say they were showing the price differences. You know, if you were to fly first class on a traditional airline, it would be you know $25,000 at the time, international, uh, versus, I don't know, whatever it was, eight $9,000 for a seat on on what was almost like a chartered plane, you know, with such few right. seats. But here's the problem. The vast majority of your back and forth New York to London is, is Wall Street. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, individual, the individual employees don't buy the ticket. The travel department buys the tickets. Right. And the travel department didn't want to do business with a new customer or a new airline. They wanted to send everybody to United or American or even British to get the big discounts they got for their company because the travel department was more concerned about the cost they were paying for the seat than how comfortable it was for their employee. What is your earliest money memory, Dave? Did you grow up thinking, I want to run a financial services firm, or was it something else? I mean, I wanted to be a waitress. (laughs) That's as far as my mind went when I was four, five, six years old. I thought that was a glamorous job. Uh, what, what, what is your earliest money memory? And now looking back on that memory, you can say, wow, that's, uh, that's very telling of who I sort of am today and how I proceed with my finances as an adult. Well, when I grew up furnished, I had no, um, sort of executive role models or business role models or professional role models in my life. I grew up um, outside of New York City, out in um, Long Island, a place called Levittown. Um, My street was full of um, uh, garage mechanics and bus drivers and policemen and firemen and factory workers. My dad was a factory worker. And so I, I, I saw how everyone kind of struggled financially, but they all led a very nice life. I mean, they all, it, it, it was a nice life. Everyone, um, it was a community and um, everyone, but nobody loved their work. They did their work. It was a way to pay the bills. And um, I guess the only person who really seemed to like their job in my neighborhood was the one guy in our street who was a teacher. And so I thought that's what I would become. I would become a teacher. And um, then when I got to Penn and I started to um, broaden my social relationships, I met people whose parents were business people. And I, I, I suddenly noticed they seemed to live on, on sort of a nicer life. They traveled to different places. They, they, enjoyed, they enjoyed the benefits of a little more economic um, uh, resources and, and that actually they enjoyed working more than the blue collar guys I knew. And I, I never knew what people in those tall buildings in Manhattan did. We went into Manhattan once a year for a, field, a school field trip uh, to a museum or United Nations or something. I never knew what those people did. And then um, I, I, I met some of them, uh, parents of friends, and they enjoyed working in businesses. And they told me about that. And so I thought, well, gee, maybe, maybe that's something I can do. 
and so that's when I, I realized um, that, number one, uh, business would be more fun than I thought, and, um, and maybe I could be good at it. So that's when I went off and got my MBA and, and rechanneled myself toward a business career. You made a decision and you made it happen. I love that. So inspiring. Yeah. How about a so money moment, Dave, a time in your life where you feel like you had a real financial win? And I'm sure there have been many moments like this for you. But if there's one that you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Well, I would say that um, the, the, the thing that, that um, was my biggest win was uh, when, when we – so Chuck and myself and 14 other executives had an opportunity to buy Charles Schwab back from the Bank of America – in 1987, and um, we we sold the we sold Schwab or Chuck sold Schwab. I wasn't there yet. So Chuck sold Schwab to the B of A for 57 million dollars in 1982. We bought the company back for about 300 million dollars in 1987. But actually, what we did, Harnoosh, was we put up $19 million. We scraped together $19 million, and the rest was all leverage, all borrowings and, and warrants. And so um, with this $19 million, we controlled 100% of the equity of Charles Schwab. And I was part of that group. And then we took the company public uh, in 1987 at $16.50 a share, it was a 50% premium over what we bought the company for. Um, and then the company, uh, the stock market crashed in 87, and we were below our IPO price for four years. Wow. For four years, we could not get above $16.50 a share. And I saw a lot of guys sell their stock at $10, $11, $15. Anytime we got near uh, $16.50 a share, guys started to get the cash. And I didn't. I just held the stock. And I held the stock, and then I got a big stock option grant in 1992, and I became the president of Schwab. And I, hold, I held that until it expired, just before it expired in, 19, in 1999 and 2000. And by being patient, uh, the power of compounding, the power of being concentrated in one company that managed to grow. If you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, really watch that basket carefully. Wow. And, and that's what I did. I, that was my life. My life was building Schwab. I stayed very concentrated, and it was a, a, a big financial win for me. It helps to be the CEO, too, to have to, to for that basket to be uh, compiled of stocks that, of stock that you work for, right? Because I think for the average person, they shouldn't put all their money in one, in one basket. That would be, that's like, look at the Enron folks or the Tyco folks or the Lehman Brothers people, you know, like your company could go under. And if that's where your pension is or your future is, then, you know, that's, that's devastating. Oh, I agree with you a hundred percent, but I was, I was 35, 40 years old. So I had, I had time. Yes. Things went bad. I had, I still had time in front of me, but, but you're right. As, as I got older, and as this became worth a lot of money, I started to diversify. Mm -hmm. And I hired an estate planning attorney to help me diversify. And I, I, I used a whole bunch of interesting uh, uh, themes and estate planning themes, uh, charitable remainder trusts and other things that would allow me to 
diversify with the minimum tax consequences and starting to do more in the way of philanthropy. Philanthropy has become a really important part of my life. And I'm so lucky because, you know, not everybody has a chance to do that. And, and I, I have had a chance because of the financial benefits I had from, from working at Schwab. I mean, when, when I was at Schwab, our, 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 we went public in 87 at, at a market cap of $450 million, And then our stock went down to $150 million when the market crashed, $150 million. And then over the next 15 years, the market value of Schwab went from $150 million to over $30 billion. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about philanthropy in a, in a little bit. Uh, I'll ask you more about that. Ahead of that, though... Dave, what's a habit that you practice, a financial habit that you practice that helps to keep your money in check? Well, um, <laughs> um, well, I, I, I'm a great believer in, in uh, budgeting. And the truth of the matter is I, I don't really have to budget at this stage, but um, I still do. I still watch how much I spend on different things because I think it's important and it just is who I am to pay attention. How much money am I spending on different things? And I always think to myself, gee, is that really the best and highest use of, of a dollar? And, and is there something else I ought to be doing? And I think, I think to myself, um, okay, it's not a question of whether I can afford it, but is that money I should be, let's say donating to a, charitable organization. I, I, I try to put, I try to put some, um, some threshold on myself that makes me ask the question, do I really need this? Is this a really a good, a, a good use of, of a dollar? And it's not, can I afford it? I think that's a bad question to ask. Should think, you afford it? <laughs> yeah, it's the should question. Yeah, I think it's the should question. One of the one of the habits I've gotten into. This is really funny, but I think it's it's actually terrific. I've decided that I absolutely need no more new clothes. Clothes. I have as much clothes as I can fit in my closet. Or <laughs> new clothes. So here's my new habit. But I like I like buying clothes. So here's my new habit. If I buy two new shirts, I give away two shirts. If I buy a new pair of pants, I give away a pair of pants. So, and I look for the thing I haven't been wearing and I just give it away. So there's no net ads to my closet. (laughs) Say there's a Goodwill store in my neighborhood that has a lot of nice clothes in it. All right, let's go ahead and do some of these fun so money fill in the blanks, Dave. The first is if you won the lottery tomorrow, I'm going to say, you know, infinite amounts of dollars. What would be the first thing you would do? Well, I would uh, I would try to I would try to figure out something I could do to make it to really change the world. If I had an infinite amount of money, I know I can't change everything. But I think I think that um, I look at Gates, for example, and he has really focused himself on on certain diseases in Africa. He's really he's out to, to eradicate them. And, um, and I would pick out something I think I could change in the world and I would try to, um, to execute that change in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. What is one thing in your life that you spend money on that makes your life easier or better or both? Starbucks. (laughs) I'm a Starbucks fanatic. I, 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 I know that I could 
make a latte in my office with the machine a lot cheaper than going to Starbucks every morning. There's a Starbucks in my building. And I love that place. And I probably, I know I drink too much coffee, but it's, it is my guilty pleasure. It is. And I, 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 I'm, I'm an addict. I, I go to Istanbul and I walk, you know, 10 blocks to find the Starbucks in Istanbul so I can have my <laughs> Starbucks fix in the morning. You should try some Turkish tea when you're there. I mean, when in Rome, goodness. Yeah, I, I- I'm just an addict. I, I admit it. I'm, so I'm it's a- also your guilty pleasure, which was my next question. So coffee qualifies as both the uh, Starbucks specifically is both your uh, guilty yeah. pleasure and what makes your life better. Well, I, I, I also admit to being a big fan of the company. Um, uh, Howard Schultz is one of the executives I, I interviewed for my book. Um, when I was writing my book, as opposed to teaching my class, I, I came to realize that the stories of how Copy uh, how how we lead breakthrough change. Uh, the story shouldn't be all my stories. We needed to hear how other executives have learned lessons about leading breakthrough change. And so I interviewed uh, a dozen uh, executives that the, the which was so much fun. I it, it, you already have that pleasure in your life. I interv- interviewed the CEO of of um, of JetBlue. I interviewed the CEO of eBay. I interviewed the former CEO of Wells Fargo. Um, it was just great fun to hear these amazing executives talk about their careers. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Is how to do a startup. Hmm. I, I would have loved to have done a startup when I was younger. I had no idea. How does one raise money? Who do you go? I didn't know anybody that had any money. So I had no idea how you start a company, but I would have loved to not go to work for big companies. I would have loved to do a startup or even had to find a job in a startup. You know, that, that, that world was so foreign to me. And yet I have friends who are my contemporaries who worked in venture capital and startups um, almost their whole lives. And I'm so envious of, of their careers and um, uh, wish I had spent my life doing stuff like that. All right, time for you to brag about yourself. I'd like you to end on a happy, inspiring note. I'm Dave Potruck, and I'm so money because? Because I think that I uh, don't, don't need a lot of money to be happy. Um, and so I'm still in awe of the opportunities I have. And um, still, I'm still just, uh, I, I, every day I'm excited. And uh, every day I'm in awe of how my life has turned out and how fortunate I am. I am so grateful for the people in my life who've made a difference, who have and still do make a difference. And, um, and it's just, and the people I've gotten to know, I'm, I'm just a pretty happy guy. Well, thanks so much, Dave. You put a smile on my face. Everyone, please check out the book. It's called Stacking the Deck. How to Lead Breakthrough Change Against Any Odds. You can check it out at davidpotruck.com. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. It's been fun this morning. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. That is a wrap with our guest, David Potruck. If you'd like to learn more about him, please check out his website, davidpotruck.com. He's also on Twitter, at David Potruck. We've got this episode as well as the transcript and the comments from this episode and all previous episodes at somoneypodcast.com. And there also you can submit a question for me. What's on your money mind? What 
are you curious about when it comes to your personal finances, your personal career, your personal goals? I'm all ears. Send me a question at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh. And every weekend, I attempt to answer every single question. Now, if you love what you're hearing and you want the podcast to continue, please spend a minute to leave a review on iTunes. It is a very impactful way to support the podcast and avoid it from falling into no man's land on iTunes. Good reviews get you good placement in the store, which is very, very critical to get organic growth and people to realize that I'm here. Hey, hello. Anybody here? Yeah, we are. We're having a lot of fun. So with your review, with all of your reviews, the collection of your reviews, the iTunes folks, the powers that be at iTunes, realize that, oh, this podcast might be a little popular. So they give us some love in the store. So when you do that, let me know because every week I select a new review and that person who left the review receives a free 15-minute money session with me over Skype. So when you leave a review, email me at farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com to just let me know and I'll be sure to submit you into that drawing. Thanks so much again for tuning in and to my guest, David Potruck. Hey, hope your day is so money. 